good to be back with you this week. Last week uh, I attended a reunion with people that uh, I hadn't seen in 40 years, and some of them I'd never seen before in my life. And it was a, but it was a fabulous time, and uh, uh, really great. You know, one of, and let me just tell you, between us, the thing that was most gratifying to me about the whole event. Two things, one of them being reunited after, after decades with a man who was my mentor in music, in ministry, and in Christian discipleship 40 years ago. And to be reunited with him for the first time in many, many years was a, was a tremendous blessing. And to be reunited with some friends from those years but as gratifying, perhaps more gratifying than any to me, was to, was to meet with people that I worshipped and served and discipled with 40 years ago who are still walking with Jesus, who are still serving the Lord, who have been fruitful in their lives, and who have gone through many dangers, toils, and snares as we all have. And grace has brought them safe thus far. Amen. That's not something I take for granted because we live in a very... It's, it's not easy to be a Christian, folks, is it? We live in a tough world and the world has a very strong gravity that pulls on all of us. And too often we, we hear of people that we're in our youth group or this or that. And they're not with the Lord anymore. That was not so with the group that I met. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time. But I'm glad to be back with you this week. Uh, we've got some handouts uh, left. Does everybody have one that wanted one? We have uh, some handouts for notes. We've got these up here, uh, if you wish. The, uh, I checked uh, on the uh, CBC website, and uh, the audio from our first session isn't posted says audio not available. That isn't because we don't have one. It's because there's some kind of a hitch on that. It is available at choir.cbcbryan.org and it will at some point be attached to the, uh, uh, to the current uh, summer series uh, audios as well. But you can, you can access that right now at choir.cbcbryan.org. Uh, org. That's the old Central Baptist Word website. Choir.cbcbryan.org. And there is a problem if they go to our our site now that they're posting it. Mm -hmm. There's a firewall issue. They're trying to correct. So uh, we can't we can't get anybody as of this moment. So the actual church website's out. Uh, hang in there. Technical difficulties. And we all know that computers are uh, infested by the devil. Uh, but, uh, but we shall overcome. Amen? We are, uh, just for, uh, I want to, is there anybody in here, this is your first time in this class. Okay? Several of you. Uh, 
what we are doing, just to, just to brief you, without going through everything that we're doing, uh, but just to brief you on what we've got going here. Uh, we are Christians understanding Islam. That's what we're trying to do. We are sim simply trying to understand briefly, uh, in a summary fashion, not trying to go into great depth because there's not time. Islam is a very... Uh, there's a lot more to it than we can ever get to here. There's a lot more to the history of Islam than we're going to get to here. and That's still going to be the major thing that we're doing. Um, let's see, you were working here just a minute ago. Why are you not now? Okay. What we're doing is we are learning basic things a Christian should know about the religion of Islam in order to obey the commandment of God to love our neighbor as ourselves and to fulfill the commission of our Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim his good news to every person, including Muslims. Um, where are we on this? This is a four-session uh, series, and we are in session number three today. Our first one dealt with uh, the gospel according to Muhammad with a question mark because as we, if you were here you understand Muhammad's gospel isn't really very good news it basically is the judgment is coming and you've got to straighten up you're welcome uh, so uh, that's what we dealt with there last week Mark Straczynski stood in and uh, presented made a presentation on Islam and the gospel witness and uh, today we are going to be talking about the origins and foundation of Islam. And next week, our objective is to see if we can decode the Quran. Um, today we're going to be looking at the origin of Islam and its variations. So before we get any further into this, let's ask our Lord's help in all that we do right now. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity that we can study the mind and thoughts and beliefs of our neighbors. And I pray that as we do so, you will impart to us an empathy with them, a compassion for them, and your love towards them, and a reminder that we all need Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Today, uh, specifically in Origin of Fabulous, we're, we're going to, was uh, working on this last night. There's, I thought this was going to be easy. <laughs> this one of all of them, I thought this is going to be pretty easy. And I thought there's, first of all, winnowing the material and getting it to a manageable length and then, okay, how to present it, how to, it, it just, it got kind of involved. So I hope that what we do today is going to be sufficiently clear to, uh, enough to all of us. As, as we were worshiping this morning, the songs that we sang and the message that we heard from our pastor, so powerfully impressed upon me and reminded me that we have a Savior 
the Muslim does not have a savior. Not in his religion. Not in his faith. So we're going to find out, but what he has is a prophet. What we're going to find out is about that prophet. Who was Muhammad? What is the source of the religion that he inaugurated? How did it spread? And what are the different varieties of Islam and how do they differ? We're not going to go into all of the history and all of the culture of Islam. All of that is worthy to consider. If we were having an eight-week study, we might get into some of that, but we're not. So let's keep it to what we can handle. And besides that, we all want to get out before lunch. Do I have an amen? <laughs> okay, so. Let's have a look, first of all, as we find out who Muhammad was, let's uh, have a look at the Arabia that produced Muhammad. Uh, you've got a, an idea in mind of, of Arabia, and it's probably... The picture that you have is probably pretty accurate, uh, but let's kind of go over a little bit. Uh, geography of Arabia is essentially desert. You've got desert plains, you've got desert dunes, and then you've got the desert of death that and actually is called Al-Ruba Khali, the empty space. Nobody lives there, nobody goes there. They don't travel there if they can help it. That's where you go if you have a death wish. Or if you've got a reality TV show that you're trying to promote. <laughs> the culture of Arabia in the era of Muhammad. Now, Arabia had, uh, there had been Arabian kingdoms that had risen and fallen. The, uh, uh, one of the late ones around the, uh, around the time of Christ and thereafter was the Nabataean kingdom, which inhabited the old uh, area that used to belong to the nation of Edom. And the city of Petra, which you've seen featured for, perhaps in uh, several films such as uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that uh, city was, that, that was the capital of the, of the Nabataean kingdom. It was an Arab kingdom. But the Arabian kingdoms had uh, kind of evaporated as kingdoms. Uh, essentially, the, the Arabs had uh, reverted in this age to tribal identities and had gone their different ways. Their culture was mixed. It was multicultural. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a significant non-Semite population. Uh, that included uh, uh, people from uh, Europe, a large contingent of uh, Ethiopian, Ethiopic, uh, Egyptian, non-Arab peoples. There were uh, Persian influences, there were, and so forth. And there were mixed Semite influences, including Jews and Arabs. The largest population course was uh, Arab because these were the people who were most willing to put up with the difficult climate and you had two segments of the Arab population you had and their cultures were different you had the northern Arabs who were the nomads these are the Bedouin 
they, uh, they spoke pure Arabic. They were desert dwellers. They were a people under themselves. They were fiercely independent. Their morality tended to be focused on their tribal identity. And so within the tribe, they were expected to show evidence loyalty, honesty, uh, integrity of one sort. But in dealing with other tribes or in dealing with outsiders, not necessarily so much. But they were very, very independent. They valued that independence and fought for it and fought each other for it if they needed to. Southern Arabs, on the other hand, those were the ones who were living down in the, in the plains in southern Arabia, uh, uh, those uh, coastal plains south. They would receive, uh, it was a, a, a desert land, but received regular rainfall coming in from the Indian Ocean. And uh, the, uh, they were farmers. They were much more established um, they spoke a Semitic mixed dialect with a lot of Ethiopic uh, influence in that. Town, they were town dwellers. They were being town dwellers. They were subject, you know, being subject to raids and uh, such things as that. They were, they were very security minded. They, uh, uh, so you've got a very different, different culture when you're when you're minded toward independence on one hand or when you're minded toward security on the other. Both groups very dependent on trade. The Arabian religion before Muhammad, what kind of religion did Arabs subscribe to? This is the environment in which Muhammad grew up. Uh, Arab religion was considered an animistic polytheism. It was a more primitive kind of polytheism than you had, for example, with the Greeks and Romans. The Greeks and Romans had a well-developed pantheon. It was uh, even more primitive even than, even than the Canaanite uh, polytheism, in which you had local gods and local deities which followed a certain pattern. Um, but it kind of was moving toward that. You had uh, gods, local gods and goddesses, tribal gods and goddesses. They venerated astral deities, the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon. Uh, then they acknowledged the existence of lesser spirits, the jinn. And some of them were more benign and fairy-like, and others were rather malignant and demonic. And, uh, in their approach to people. And so there was, in other words, that there's a lot of superstition. The Arabs, one of the peculiarities of Arab religion and of Arab polytheism was the veneration of sacred stones. They tended to be, uh, particularly in the desert, certain kinds of stones stood out. These were typically meteorite. Uh, and uh, had spoken. And they had legends and myths of these stones, great stones having fallen from heaven in some distant time past. And these they considered to be uh, tokens and evidences of the gods and they would, they would venerate these stones and there, there was a very superstitious veneration of them. Most significantly, one that had fallen 
in the area that became part of the village of Mecca. And this was a black stone. And this was very significant and drew Arab pilgrims from various places in order to come and to uh, essentially come and touch the stone, come and become part of this, uh, just whatever whatever mojo that this stone might have and this might carry, uh, you know, just to be part of that. And they built a shrine around this stone. This was the Kaaba. This predated Muhammad. This was there in Mecca when Muhammad was born. And everybody went there. It was a very significant place. Uh, Arab religion included blood sacrifices, communal feasts, but they didn't have they didn't have a lot of temples, and their temples were not elaborate. Uh, these, after all, were desert dwellers. They didn't have a lot of time for fanciness. These were people who lived in tents. They didn't need a whole lot of uh, fancy temples, but what they did need were religious rituals that kept them going and kept them together. Uh, there were many outside influences. Uh, Judaism and Christianity were among them. So also was Persian Zoroastrianism. And so also, of course, were the various polytheisms of the, of the Greeks and Romans. And then there were the, uh, uh, which had, by the time of Muhammad, not so much influential uh, because of the influence of Christianity in the Roman Empire. But then there were the animistic religions, uh, animistic influences from Africa. So you had a lot of different influences. The extent of Christianity among the Arabs is not really known. They didn't keep very detailed records. Matter of fact, they didn't keep records at all. Uh, they didn't write histories. They didn't do it. So the influence of this, and we don't really have uh, a lot of extensive information about the um, any kind of missionary effort that might have been taken taking place among the Arabs. They were not really a conducive people to missionary outreach. What Christianity did reach to this area probably was of the Assyrian variety, and the Assyrian variety of uh, Christianity had split off from the Byzantine orthodoxy. Byzantium by this time was the center of the Roman Empire, you know. Byzantium, the city that would become Constantinople. Actually, that was the city by the, at this time. Constantinople, Constant, Constantine had named that himself. Yes? Is this the 500s we're talking about, or 400s? Or? About 600. 600. Mm -hmm. And the type of Christianity that was uh, held by this, their theology. Christianity had gone through a, a lot of controversies over the nature of Christ. Having settled the issue that the, that God the Father and God the Son are one in nature, but there are three persons in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That question was settled, but having done that, they began to, okay, what is the nature of God? 
particularly God the Son. We've got, we've got God in the flesh. The Word became flesh. What does that mean? And trying to hash that out. The Nestorians, uh, who the name of Nestorius, Nestorius didn't invent this point of view, but his name got attached to it. He was the bishop of uh, Constantinople, of the church in Constantinople. His name got attached to this. And there was a big controversy, and eventually Nestorianism, the view that was associated with them, was declared a heresy. What is that? That is the belief that Jesus had two separate natures. That he had a human nature and a divine nature, but these did not connect to one another so that you cannot say that God suffered and died on the cross. You cannot say that God died in atonement for our sin. That Jesus as God. And you cannot say that Mary gave birth to God in the flesh. can't say that. So you, these are the kind that eventually was declared a heresy, but it existed and continued to exist. As a matter of fact, it still exists, but its uh, elements of Islamic radicalism are trying to wipe out the last existence of the Assyrian Church. But this is the form of Christianity. Along with that, though, Christianity had gotten had gotten pretty attached to certain things. One of them is icons. And icons, pictures and images and relics of saints became such an object of veneration for many common believers that it was hard for, it was hard for somebody like Muhammad to separate what the Christians were doing with their icons and what the pagans were doing with their idols. So you've got this confusion about theology, which isn't really clear, even what these Christians are arguing about. So it sounds like to Muhammad that they're saying, well, that there are three gods. And it looks like to Muhammad that the Christians are worshiping idols just like the pagans are, despite the fact that they say that they're not idolaters. So these are certain things and certain influences. And then you have, particularly in the city of Mecca, the worship of deities in the city of Mecca focused on three goddesses, Manat, Fortune, Alat, the sun goddess, and Uzzah, fertility, a Venus figure. And there was Allah, who was a moon god, and he was the creator. But he was distant. Uh, he just kind of... He was... He was they didn't really have much to do with him. It was kind of a deism with regard to Allah. Allah created every created these things, but then doesn't really have much to do with them. So the Arabs didn't have much to do with Allah other than just kind of acknowledging that he was there. They had their religious traffic with these other three, these goddesses. Fortune, the sun, and fertility. Sex. Muhammad. 
was born in born about 570 AD in Mecca. It was of the Quraysh tribe. This is northern Arab. His father died before he was born. His mother died when he was six. He's orphaned. But he was immediately adopted by his grandfather and lived with his grandfather as a child. His grandfather was very, uh, apparently was, gave him love and nurturing. But his grandfather up and died. So his uncle, who was a fairly prosperous merchant, adopted him. And he, well, didn't adopt him, but took him in, became his ward. So he grew up in the religious traditions of the Meccans. As, an, as orphans go, he did not have a life of great hardship, but on the other hand, he didn't really have a life of great privilege either. He, was a, uh, he worked for his uncle. He didn't, he didn't just abide in the household as a, as a spoiled child. He worked for his uncle as a, uh, as a camel driver. Not the easiest work in the world. And not the most prestigious job that a young Arab lad could have, but it kept him busy. Kept him off the street. <laughs> he um, married rather late, as, as these things go. He was age 25 when he married Khadijah, a wealthy widow who was 15 years his senior. This is what gave him cushion. She basically was had a, had a very steady and very ample income, and so he moved from a life of hard work to a, hard, a life of free. Much easier than he ever thought he'd ever had. So that gave him a lot of time on his hands, and he spent a lot of that time walking about, meditating, thinking on such things, thinking on the issue, religious issues of his day, thinking on the morality of his day and the inconsistencies of that morality, the supposed valuing of, of life and uh, uh, the prohibitions against murder unless it's murder of your enemies or unless you have a daughter born to your household and you've already got more daughters than you want. You really want a son, so what you do with your daughter is you go out and you bury her. Alive. Doesn't matter. If she's a baby, she doesn't care. This was the callousness of the of Arab morality at that time. He saw these things, he noticed these and a lot of this did not really set well with him. Um, he had two sons who died young, who died as children. He also had four daughters who grew to adulthood, who married and had children themselves. One of them, Fatima, would marry Muhammad's cousin, Ali. At the age of 40, this is about the year 610, Muhammad had a vision. He was in a cave in the Mount Hira, and he a voice spoke to him, saying, Recite in the name of thy Lord who created, created man from a blood clot. Recite in the name of thy Lord who taught by the pen, taught man what he knew not. 
scared the bejeebers out of him. He took off running out of the cave and was stopped by the voice saying, O Muhammad, you are the messenger of God and I am the angel, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel, according to Muhammad, gave him assurance that he was not there to do him harm, but to pass on to him messages from Allah, who had chosen him to proclaim a message to the people of Mecca, that there was only one God, and that was Allah, and that the judgment day is coming, and they better straighten up. He continued to have these revelations for the rest of his life. And those revelations form the content of the Holy Quran. He began to minister as a prophet in Mecca. He began preaching belief in Allah in the last day, and also, by the way, a, the more he preached and the more people said well who are you to be saying this and the more he began to emphasize I am the one Allah has chosen you had better listen to me or else those messages, those kinds of messages continued throughout they can be found throughout the Quran where, where Muhammad is continually emphasizing continually receiving revelations from Allah coming back and reinforcing, you are my messenger, you are my messenger, people had better listen to you or else. His early followers, well, he managed to win close friends and family. Not really much of anybody else. Mecca was one of the, was probably the most tolerant, religiously tolerant city in that region of the world, if not in the world. You could find any kind of religion in Mecca, including Christianity, including Judaism, but including also every kind of idolatry, every kind of superstition, but all of these things that just kind of coexisted. Mecca was a trade town. It was uh, along a trade route, an oasis in the desert along a trade route. It just they, uh, they were very tolerant people. That, that kind of tolerance seemed to bother Muhammad. Muhammad thought, we've got too much going on here. We need to consolidate all this. We need to find out what the truth is and get to it. And, Muhammad, and Allah was revealing to Muhammad, he believed the truth. So he gathered together some friends and family. And after several years of all of this, he still had about 100 followers. Among his followers, though, was his cousin Ali, who was about the same age as Muhammad, who, I remind you, married Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. And a wealthy merchant by the name of Abu Bakr, who became his wealthiest backer, if you will. And it was Abu Bakr's support that really kept Muhammad afloat during this time. Come on. 
At first he was uh, accepted. They wanted to hear what he had to say. He came and uh, spoke of himself. He said, well, who are you? What are you? He said, I am, are you somebody's back? He said, I'm just a warner. A warner. I'm somebody who's come to warn you. That's all I am. I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm just a warner. Allah has sent me to warn. So he was accepted, but as he began to, you know, he, you know, he stopped preaching, began to meddling as far as they were concerned. But they didn't... Muslims would like to portray the, the fact that he was, they, he was persecuted, they were intensely persecuted. Well, Meccans let him hang around there for 13 years before they got fed up. They mocked him. They did. They did. They, who are you? Who do you think you are? Well, you know, there's a man with no education. He was a man with uh, 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 these visions that he said came from a God that they scarcely knew anything about. And his approach to them at the beginning seemed kind of open and compromising, but the, the more that they had an exchange with him, the, the more... Uh, the more combative that he became. And so this kind of built, it sort of spiraled on into that. And so after a dozen or 13 years or so, uh, the Meccans kind of were pushing on and saying, yeah, well, you're really... At this point in Muhammad's career, he had visions in which he was given some verses of, uh, of revelation that said that those three goddesses that the Meccans worshipped were it was acceptable to venerate them on a certain level because they belonged to a level of of spirit being a level of being that uh, spoke to us of God. They were they were part of God. When he began saying that, his the people of Mecca said, "You might have something there. We might listen to you." They started becoming more open to it. But his own followers began to turn on and said, "That's not what you've been saying all along. We've been following you because you've been insisting that God is absolutely only one." And he began. So Muhammad went back and he he what as he put it it was revealed to him that it was Satan who had given him those verses. These are the satanic verses in the Quran. After this, he became increasingly confrontational. And it was after this episode that the Meccans said, you've got to get out of town. In, 16, in 620, his uncle... Abu Talib, who never became a Muslim, by the way, and his wife, Khadija, who had supported him, by the way, this is very significant, the support of Khadija was very important to Muhammad's success up to this point, to his tenacity, to his keeping up with this. She died. As was... Uh, great turnaround and fortune for him. He did marry another 
another widow, and he also married the daughter of Abu Bakr, who was seven years old at the time. Oh, don't think that he waited three years before he actually took her as his wife. And you should also know that Aisha became his favorite wife and was with him when he died. So. Yeah, you could do a reality show. In 622, he was forced to leave Mecca. <coughs> Matter of fact, he was, there was a plot out to kill him. It sent, somebody had, had uh, called for a hit on Muhammad. He got away from them. Uh, partly through the, a little deceptive act that was carried out by his cousin Ali and his daughter. Um, who covered for him while he escaped. So at this point, he goes, he occupies a little village for a while where he struggles, but then he's invited to come to a town which came to be known, it didn't have this name at the time, but it came to be known as Medina. This is called the Hijra. Uh, it's written a couple of different ways. But the hijra means migration. The word hijra means migration. This is the hijra. Very significant event. This is year one for the Muslim. Okay? In Islamic history, this is year one. This is the beginning, the real beginning of the movement. So Muhammad and his hundred or so followers moved to Medina. Why? They were, he was invited there to mediate between... The, this town was really torn up. It was an oasis town, like any town in uh, the Arabian Peninsula is. It's got to be situated around water. They were torn up by tribal, inter-tribal warfare. And there were, there were about three tribes. Well, there were several tribes, actually. But in, the warfare included tribal warfare between Jewish tribes that occupied that area. And, it, and the place was torn up by conflict. It was, uh, it was just... Uh, they, they needed somebody to, to bring in some law and order. And they thought Muhammad might be the person to do it. Muhammad and his hundred followers migrated to Medina and Muhammad began to set up shop and began there to build a new order Uman, an Islamic community based not on tribal identity but on religious submission remember from our discussion of the essence of the Islamic faith. Islam means submission. And a Muslim is a submitter. And this is the message that Muhammad brought 
that brought peace to this town. Submit or else. Now at first the or else meant the judgment of Allah will come upon you at judgment day and judgment day is at hand. As things developed and particularly it was in Medina that it developed this way Muhammad became not merely the messenger of Allah for this, but also the agent of Allah to bring about submission. He set about to reach out to Jews and Christians. He said, you believe in, particularly to the Jews, you believe in one God, I believe in one God. You reject the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. I reject the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. We should get together. And Christians, he's reaching out to them. You believe that Jesus was a prophet. I believe that Jesus was a prophet. Listen to me. I will tell you the real truth about Jesus. And we can come to agree on that. And you can come to terms with Allah. And we'll all be happy together. We'll, and so he's doing, making some outreach. And so and you've got passages in the Quran which he's reaching out to Christians. And he's reaching out to Jews. And appealing to Jews. And appealing to Christians. This didn't last long. One of the reasons why Muhammad's versions of Bible stories, for example, were off. Muhammad didn't tell the same he told the same Bible stories that are in the Old Testament, but he didn't tell them the same way. And they all tended to come around back to the same point. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And to the Christians, well, Christians didn't understand how it could be true that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Christians didn't understand, of course, you know, Believing that Muhammad said, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. Is he the Son of God? No, absolutely not. We can't go there. They couldn't do it. They couldn't have this kind of unity with Muhammad that he was reaching out for and appealing to. During this time in Medina, the... Islamic movement evolved from a relatively peaceful religion to a military dictatorship. Muhammad ordered raids on Meccan caravans. Mecca was basically the enemy. This was the first target. Muhammad felt like he had been completely wronged by the Meccans and he was going to get them back. Meccans got tired of this and they mounted uh, an armed assault against Muhammad's uh, enclave at Medina took a thousand man army Muhammad had 300 Muhammad defeated them at the battle of Badr March 624 there's another battle it was not a victory for Muhammad but it was not a decisive victory for the Meccans either the battle of Uhud 625 Finally, in 627, the Meccans 
put forward an all-out assault on Medina. Massive invasion. Thousands of soldiers. Muhammad dug a trench around the city of Medina to impede the attack of the Meccans. This became known as the Battle of the Trench. The forces of Muhammad lost four men as the Meccans were driven back. That battle was followed by the slaughter of 800 Jews, men and boys, in the town of Karaza. Why? Not because they turned on Muhammad and betrayed him, but because they were put into a position by the Meccans. They were given a dilemma. Either come to us, help us, or we will kill you. Muhammad, help us with it. Those, that town remained neutral, and because they remained neutral, Muhammad took that as a betrayal and used the occasion to slaughter 800 Jewish men and boys in that town. The roots of jihad are to be found in this period of Muhammad at Medina. These are all, all three of them. There, there are many passages that one can refer to in the Quran regarding jihad. All of these happen to be in the same surah. Surah, by the way, is a chapter. Okay? Surah 9, verse 5, And when the sacred months are past, kill those who join other gods with God wherever you shall find them, and seize them, besiege them, and lay wait for them with every kind of ambush. But if they shall convert and observe prayer and pay the obligatory alms, then let them go their way, for God is gracious, merciful. That's Surah 9, 5. So jihad against the polytheists. If the polytheists will not repent of their polytheism, find them, slay them. Jihad against the Meccans. But if after alliance is made, they break their oaths and revile your religion, then do battle with the ringleaders of infidelity, for no oaths are binding with them, that they may desist. What? Will you not fight against those Meccans who have broken their oaths and aim to expel your apostle and attack you first? Will you dread them? God is more worthy of your fear if you are believers, so make war on them. By your hands will God chastise them and will put them to shame and will give you victory over them and will heal the bosoms of a people who believe. That's verse 12. And jihad against Jews and Christians in the same surah. Make war upon such of those whom, to whom the scriptures have been given to believe as believe not in God or in the last day and who forbid not that which God and his apostle have forbidden, and who profess not the profession of the truth until they pay tribute out of hand and they be humbled. The Jews say Ezra is a son of God, and the Christians say the Messiah is a son of God. Such sayings in their mouths, they resemble the saying of the infidels of old. God do battle with them. How are they misguided? They take their teachers and their monks and the Messiah, the son of Mary, for lords besides God, though bidden to worship one God only. There is no God but he. Far from his glory be what they associate with him. Muhammad's method essentially was polytheists 
force their conversion or slavery. Of Jews and Christians did not formally force their conversion, but required tribute from them. A punitive tribute for existing in his land as Christians or as Jews. There's a period of consolidating power. In 628, after the Hijra, year 6, had a truce, a treaty with the Meccans. During this time, he attacked the Chaibar Jews, that city, killed many. They surrendered. He demanded from, from them, it's a farming village, demanded of them 50% of their produce. That was their tribute. The first Hajj was in 629, his first pilgrimage to Mecca. First time Muhammad returned to Mecca from Medina after the, after the, uh, uh, after he migrated there. And during this first Hajj, these traditions were established. One of them was touching the black stone. Remember that the black stone was a pivotal part of what worship? Yeah, the worship, the polytheistic worship of the Arabs. Can't get rid of the Kaaba. You can't get rid of the black stone. It is too much ingrained in them. So Muhammad transformed it. And according to Muhammad, Abraham planted this stone as the cornerstone of the Kaaba. The other thing was the muezzin, the call to prayer, which is heard all over the Muslim, all over the Islamic world. This was established as a tradition on Muhammad's first Hajj to Mecca. Remember, the Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam. If you, as a Muslim, are going to be observant, you must, if it is possible at some time in your life, make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Muhammad conquered Mecca. He came back and conquered Mecca in AD 630. Uh, AH8. Well, I thought they were had a truce. Yeah. But during this time, Muhammad's raiders were raiding Meccan caravans all over the place. Meccans were getting filled up, fed up with it again. And then... Somebody retaliated and killed one of Muhammad's friends. And Muhammad used this as a pretext for war. And came and said, they broke the treaty, I didn't, and attacked Mecca. And conquered it. When he did so, all of the images of the gods were destroyed. The key to the Kaaba was taken. And his power in the Arabian Peninsula is secured. He sets out, he's getting ready to set out on an invasion of Syria when he takes suddenly a fever and dies unexpectedly. This was in AD 632, the year 10 after the Hajj. Nobody expected him to die so soon, so suddenly, so young. 
about age 60. He had not set up any kind of a line of succession. Guess what happened after that? There was a contention as to who should be the next leader. There is not another prophet. There can't be another prophet. Muhammad is the ultimate of the prophets. He's the final prophet. So there can't be another prophet. But there we have to have a leader. This, this kind of a movement demands a leader. And so his number one guy, Abu Bakr, came in and essentially as one of the guys, one of his companions, took over, took the reins of the movement, and was an able leader for the short time that he had left, and proceeded to succeed in the Islamization of Arabia. This is all the very short, very, very short version, because we're coming to the end here. Uh, followed by Umar, who succeeded in the conquest of Syria, Egypt, and Iraq. Followed by Uthman, who was widely accused of nepotism, putting guys from his own tribe and clan in leadership. But he endured for about a dozen years or so. Uthman was succeeded by Ali. Ali is the first of the so-called legitimates. The, the first two, Abu Bakr, and Umar were companions of Muhammad. Ali was the son-in-law and nephew, excuse me, son-in-law and cousin of Muhammad. Ali and those who followed Ali believed that the succession should go to a relative of Muhammad. And that God would continue not as a prophet, but as an attaché of the prophet, continued to make revelations to those who would come. He is the first imam. Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman called themselves caliph, leader. Caliph, caliph, say it different ways. Leaders. Ali did not like that term because it's purely a political term. Ali saw himself as a spiritual leader and he took for himself the title Imam. And it was under Ali that the first fitna took place in Islam, in the Islamic movement, the first civil war. not going to go into all of that and all of the details and history of that, but you've wondered, because you've seen, the, you've seen in the news, you've seen description, and you've seen discussion, you know, you've got Sunni Islam, you've got Shia Islam, and sometimes the way that Western news reporters put it, you know, you wonder, well, which one is better? And, you know, who, you know, when, and where do the Muslim extremists come from? You know, are they are they Sunnis or are they Shia? Are they Shiites? Which which one? Well, 
In just a second, we're going to figure out that that's the wrong approach to take to this. It's not who's better, it's not who's more favorable to the West, it's not more who's more open to Christianity. We're going to find that's, that's not what this is. So have a look here. Okay, the term Shia means partisan. And the Shiites were partisans of Ali. The term Sunni comes from the Sunnah, the, the trodden path. The Sunnah, this is the, supposedly the way of life that Muhammad lived, that he recommended to others. In those. So these are the people who follow the Sunnah. That's how they look at themselves. So you see, it's a different approach to looking at things. It's very, very interesting that the, the group that call themselves partisan do not look at themselves as having a political movement, but a spiritual one. And the people who take the spiritual name essentially regard Islam as being led by political leaders. Curious bit of irony, I think. The Shia believe that Muhammad named Ali as a successor, as his successor. The Sunni, the Sunni believe, do not believe that Muhammad named a successor, so that it was up to his companions to figure out, okay, who, who's up, who goes, who does this. The Sunni believe that the Prophet's companions have authoritative leadership. And the Shia believe that Muhammad's family has the sole claim to legitimate leadership. The Sunni rely on consensus, the ijma of legal and religious scholars. I'm not vouching for my pronunciation of these Arabic words, by the way. I don't speak Arabic. Shia rely on authoritative teaching of Muhammad's descendants. In the Shiites, the leader is an imam, a spiritual leader. He's a mediator. He actually is a mediator between Allah and Muslims. For the Sunni, the leader is caliph. Only political leader is not a descendant. Imams are prayer leaders. They're not intercessors. Do, do Sunnis have imams? Yes, they have imams in their mosque. They are prayer leaders. They are not intercessors. But for the Shiite Muslim, the imams are spiritual leaders and the head imam is an intercessor, a mediator between God and men. There are other Islamic sects that we can name. There are, the Shiites have set several sects in their midst, uh, all of them having to do with how many imams there have been and who the imams have, uh, are. And, yes, they have quarrels and they'll even fight one another over it. Um, but all of them hold to the belief that there is a hidden imam who will appear prior to the last judgment. It's, a, it's kind of an apocalyptic scenario. Uh, there are the Sufis arose, oh, about a century and a half, maybe two centuries after, uh, after the death of Muhammad. Uh, Sufi Islam is a mystical variety of Islam. And uh, these, these are people who are seeking a more personal connection and a spiritual experience. Most, uh, many, probably most Sufism is regarded by 
mainstream Islam as being heretical. And some Sufis have taken off into a lot of different streams of, uh, streams of thought. Um, and some of them have been influenced more strongly by Christianity and by other religions, some even by Buddhism uh, and so forth. But there are various forms of Sufism. Dervishes, it's a mendicant Islam. These are, these are essentially beggar monks among Muslims. It's, it's a, uh, not so much a sect in and of itself, but a movement that works within it. And Wahhabism arose, it takes its name from, uh, not from a meaning, but from the name of, a, uh, of an imam who wanted to purify Sunni Islam. Took place uh, a couple of centuries ago. And Wahhabism has taken his name. It is of the Wahhabi sect in Mecca that Osama bin Laden came forth. I'll wind up this uh, today with a quote from Muhammad that is in part of the Hadith Bukhari 8, verse 387. I have been ordered to fight the people till they say none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. And if they say no, if they say so, pray like our prayers, face our kibla, slaughter as we slaughter, then their blood and property will be sacred to us and we will not interfere, to them, interfere with them. That kind of summarizes what Muhammad's approach and his attitude were. This is the origin of Islam. Very quick, I know we're past noon. Do we have any questions? Yes? Sad to hear you didn't mention anything about uh, the drug addiction of Muhammad. I deliberately, uh, I deliberately didn't go into the, into the character issues of Muhammad's personal life for a couple of reasons, largely going back to the purposes of our, of our study. Let me do this, though. Jesus said that there shall be false prophets arise. He said, but you shall know them by their fruits. Rather than look at the fruits of Muhammad's personal life, and he, the Muslim would say, he acknowledged himself that he was a sinner. Rather than look at the fruits of his personal life, let us look at the fruits of his doctrine which is what we focused on. Because if what Allah demands is submission, then whatever means must be employed to gain submission is allowable. Is this the God who revealed himself through Jesus Christ, whom Muhammad says was a prophet and the Messiah? You shall know them by their fruits. Next week, we are going to take a look at the Quran. We are going to compare it, particularly we're going to compare what the Quran says with what Jesus says. Uh, if you've got some questions, write them down. Pass them along to me. Email them to me, gnation at suddenly.net. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you. I appreciate your being here. Thank you for your attention.